I want to start off by talking about the horseshoe crab. Did you know that the quality of your life is better because of the horseshoe crab? So if you've ever taken any type of drug or if you've used a medical device, if you've ever had an injection, you didn't have to worry about these things being contaminated because there's a certain element in the blood of the horseshoe crab called, here's the, uh, I'm going to try to pronounce this correctly, Limalis amoebocyte lysate, or LAL. This is an element within the blood of the horseshoe crab, and scientists, they extract the LAL from the horseshoe crab blood, and they use it to, to detect something called bacterial endotoxins in medical samples. So when people, when they're testing things, when they are looking at drugs that we take, they use this LAL from the horseshoe crab blood to make sure that it's safe for us to use. So the way this works is like a 20-second science lesson. So there's, there's endotoxins, which are bad for us, and they cause infections if they get into our bloodstream, and they're not detectable by any other types of these things called amoebocytes. But the LAL from horseshoe crabs, they're exceptionally sensitive to these endotoxins, and there's nothing else that we know of in nature that contains this LAL. So the LAL from the horseshoe crabs, it, it forms a gel around these endotoxins, these things that would otherwise possibly kill us to protect us. So every year, uh, the, the blood of hundreds of thousands of horseshoe crabs are harvested. And a couple interesting things about the horseshoe crab blood. If you go online, just type in horseshoe crab blood, you'll see that their blood is blue. It's super cool. The other thing is this, that it costs $60,000 for one gallon of this blood. And people pay for it because it's so unique and valuable. So what makes the horseshoe crab special in this context is what runs through its veins. It's the blood within this crab that makes it so precious to us. Now, I want to ask us in Delble Grace Church, what runs through our veins? If someone were to cut us open, what would come out? What would we bleed? Now, this question is not what denomination do we belong to. It's not where our pastors went to school. It's not the ethnic makeup of our church. It's not what kind of songs we sing. It's not what type of books and authors we enjoy reading. The question is, if someone were to cut us open, what would we bleed? And this question strikes at the very heart of who we are when everything else is stripped away. What will, we, what will we bleed when suffering strikes our church, when our finances dry up, when there's conflict, when our friends leave the church or even the faith? What are we going to bleed? So we've been going through the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians over the past three and a half months, and we've been considering what it means to be a faithful church that honors God by its ministry. And today we're going to conclude this series by just doing a recap of the past three and a half months. And then I'm going to put in front of us a response to what the scriptures call us to be as a church. So think of this, to have this question running through your head as we listen to God's word. What runs through our veins? If someone were to take a knife to our hearts or our veins, what would come out? And this leads us to our passage today, which is from 1 Corinthians 1.18, and this is in your bulletin. We're just going to read 
the first verse in your bulletin right now. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And this is the word of God. I believe, as Paul says, that the word of the cross is the power of God. I believe that this is the key idea for us as we've been talking through the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians, that the word of the cross, this is what matters most to us as a church, and this has to be central in everything that we communicate. This is the very power of God, Paul says. It's what gives meaning and purpose to what we do as a church, and the word of the cross is to define who we are as a church. This is what we desire. This is what we want to aim for. But just to say that we're a church defined by the word of the cross, that doesn't make us a church defined by the word of the cross. And, and dare I say, just preaching the word of the cross doesn't make this church defined by the word of the cross, as important as teaching and preaching are. So as we close up the series, I want us to consider how we can develop a new culture, a new culture that, that bleeds out the word of the cross. I said a few weeks ago, this is the most simple definition of culture. And you can write this down if you take notes. Culture is an understanding of what's normal. Culture is an understanding of what's normal. It's what's assumed about the way things should be. So just imagine if someone were to visit IGC for a month, and let's say that they weren't able to listen to any sermons or they weren't able to attend the membership classes, if they just spent time sitting amongst you, if they just had lunch with you, if they went to your community group, what would they assume about the values and the direction of this church? Whatever that is, that is our culture. That's what runs through our veins. So I don't have any points for today's message. Uh, Instead, today I have five questions for us to consider about the culture of this church. Five questions, and they are, what do we assume about reality? What do we assume about the purpose of this church? What do we assume about our responsibility as members of IGC? What do we believe is possible at IGC? And what must we do to shape the culture of this church? Five questions. The first one, uh, how do we assume, or what do we assume about the reality of this church? A few weeks ago, I talked about the two realms in which we live. So there is the physical realm. It's what we can experience with our senses. It's what we can observe empirically. That's the physical realm. And then there is the supernatural realm. This is the realm in which the invisible God works in ways that we can only see if we have supernatural eyes. It's what we can only understand if the Spirit of God reveals it to us. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The natural realm and the supernatural realm. In their, in their book, uh, The Ten Theories of Human Nature, Leslie Stevenson and David Haberman, they list the four elements that are common to every worldview or philo- philosophical system. And these are the core elements of of reality that every worldview or philosophy attempts to account for. And here they are. There's the background theory of the universe, a theory of the nature of man, a diagnosis of what's wrong, and a prescription for making it right. These are four core elements that are are presented by these authors who 
uh, I don't believe they're Christian, but these are ten theories of human nature they're talking about. So, a background of the universe, a theory of the nature of man, a diagnosis of what's wrong with man and the world, and a prescription for making it right. So what do we assume about reality? This is what the Christian story says. Of the background of the universe, it says, the Christian story says this, there is a triune God who created the universe out of an overflow of the love and joy between the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. God created the world and he called it good. This is what we believe about the background theory of the universe. What do we believe about the nature of man? We believe this, that God created man and woman in his image. They were endowed with a will and emotion and a creativity and the ability to know their creator. Their purpose was to reflect the glory of God. Third, what do we assume about reality? The Christian story provides a diagnosis of what's wrong. So what we believe is this, that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve... They, they chose to turn their back on their creator and they chose to play the role of God in their own life. They thought that they could live life apart from the only source of life. And the natural consequence of that was death. If you just think of a tree, if you cut a branch off of the trunk, what would happen? The branch would die. And so it is with man to seek life apart from the only true source of life is to cut ourselves off. This is cutting ourselves off from God. This is us rebelling against God. And left to ourselves, man cannot experience the pleasure of God. Instead, we can only experience the consequences of our rebellion. The Bible says this pretty provocative and offensive thing about man. It says that we are by nature children of wrath, children deserving of the wrath of God because we've rebelled against Him. This is what we say about what's wrong with man and the world. And the final thing that the Christian story, how it, how it addresses these, uh, the core elements of any worldview, the Christian faith provides a prescription for making things right. So we're talking about the word of the cross this morning and over the past course of the summer. The word of the cross, it explains the problem of man by saying that the, a cross is necessary. It's implying that there's something wrong with us and it provides the solution The cross is necessary because man distorted the image of God in him, and by trying to live life apart from God, we were doomed to death. So the cross is how we explain reality. The cross defines how we understand both the physical realm, the brokenness of the world, and also the supernatural realm. Our deepest issue is not physical. Our deepest issue is supernatural. It it, it goes, it's spiritual, so the cross is the solution to our biggest problem. And God, what does he do? How does he address it? He, he puts his son, Jesus, on an instrument of death, bearing our sin, our rebellion, so that we would not die. And God, he not only redeems his people, he also promises to redeem all of creation. This is God's solution to what is wrong with man and with the world. And he promises one day that one day all things will be made new again. Now, if this is our understanding of reality, if it's true, this lays the foundation for every other question that I'm going to talk about. If we believe that the message of the cross is the only thing that makes sense of reality as we know it, then it has to affect our lives as individuals and as a church. So that's the first question we ask ourselves. What do we assume about reality? 
Now, the second question we want to ask ourselves, if we want to create a culture in this church that honors God, is this. Look at verse uh, 16, uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 16, which is in your bulletin. Paul says this, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Look at this passage and pay attention to what Paul says here. There are three things that I observe in this verse. The first is this, that preaching the gospel gives Paul no ground for Boasting. It gives him no reason to be puffed up. He recognizes that there's no room as he preaches the gospel to draw attention to himself. He sees himself merely as the messenger. It's not his job to draw a crowd. It's not an opportunity to demonstrate his intellect and what intellect and wits. It's not his time to shine. When Paul says, I preach the gospel, when he says he does that, he says, I have nothing. Nothing to pride myself in. It gives me no ground for boasting. And this should be true of us as well. When people come to Indelible Grace Church, they shouldn't walk away going, wow, that's what a great church. They should be thinking, what an amazing God they speak of. Because the gospel itself is so humbling, is it not? It says that we have nothing before God. We have nothing before God except our sin before this holy God. That's what I see in this verse. Something else that we see in this verse. Paul says, necessity is laid upon him. Paul recognizes the burden that's placed upon him. So if you remember the story of Paul, he was killing Christians, he was persecuting them, he was chasing them down, and then he encounters the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And here he was so radically transformed that he knew he had to tell others of this good news that was so real to him. And he says, until I preach the gospel, I can't be at peace. I can't be at peace until I preach the gospel. And this is what we want for our church. We can't be content with just doing things well. The gospel has to be in there. We have to recognize the necessity of communicating not only spiritual truths, but truths that point to the message of the cross. This is why at, the, at some point in every single sermon that we've preached at IGC, at this point it's probably close to 400 sermons, the gospel's in there. I'm sorry, that doesn't sound right. Is that right? 52 times, yeah. Maybe 400, uh, 400 sermons. And it means that we have to recognize how powerful the word of the cross is. We have to understand that the gospel alone, this is what changes people. And finally, Paul says in this passage, he says, Woe to me. Paul understands his responsibility to preach the gospel, so much so that he's willing to be judged if he doesn't. He says he'd rather be struck down than to not preach the truth of the gospel, what God had given him. And for us, it means that we need to make the message of the cross central to everything that we do. The equivalent of us saying woe to me is this. If IGC ever stops preaching the gospel, it's time to shut it down. So our purpose as a church is to preach the gospel. There are many other things we need to do as a church, but the local church is God's primary means of communicating the gospel to the world. This is our purpose as a church. 
Our purpose defines everything that we do. When I lived in Southern California, I had a lot of exposure to churches that, that they made a big deal of uh, the size of the church and how many people they wanted to reach. I, I was part of a church plant that um, I talked to the pastor, and he this is a guy who um, knew all these really well-known pastors, and he was always asking them, what do I need to do to grow my church from 200 to 300 and to 400? And just the, the, the culture of, of Southern California was this, that you wanted to build a big, impressive church. This is what my classmates in seminary wanted. And I don't think it's necessarily necessarily wrong to want a church of a certain size. And I think it's a good thing if a church does everything in its power to reach as many people in their community for maximal impact so that the church will grow numerically. I don't think that those things are necessarily wrong. I think that God loves these churches and he uses them. But I don't think that this is our goal at Indelible Grace Church. We shouldn't be aiming to be a church of 200 people. We should be aiming to produce one disciple. And then another. And then another. If our church ever grows numerically, that's fine. But there are plenty of people in this church who don't follow Jesus. And there are plenty of people who don't fully follow Jesus yet. And it's our job, our purpose as a church is to make sure that they do. This is what discipleship is. If you remember Jesus' words in Matthew 16, he says, I will build my church. Our church belongs to Jesus. And Jesus, maybe what he wants for IGC is that we be a 30-person church. Or maybe it's to be a 200-person church. But that's not up to us. What's up to us is whether or not we obey his call to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Matthew 28. This is the ultimate purpose of our church, is to preach the gospel to make disciples. So that's the second question we ask to define if we want to change the culture of our church. The third question we ask is this. What do we assume about our responsibility as members of IGC? Now note, we just spent three and a half months in 1 Corinthians. And who does he write the the letter to? He writes it not to individuals, but he writes it to a church. He writes it to a community of people. Everything that he writes needs to be understood in the context of the church. And every imperative, he says, he gives us, is to be carried out in the context of community. It has to be in the context of the local church with other brothers and sisters. So we need to understand that when we read the word, it's in the context of community. One of the first sermons this summer was about the responsibility that we have as members of our church. And this is what we said. We said, according to the vows that we took as members, and we just heard a few minutes ago, that we all have specific responsibilities to each other and the church. So I gave three things that we have responsibilities toward. We have to protect our own faith. We have to build up and protect the faith of other people, our brothers and sisters, and we're to protect the ministries of this church, specifically uh, the people that are leading these ministries. So we have to ask ourselves, are we doing these things? Are we protecting our own faith? Are we protecting the faith of our brothers and sisters? And are we protecting the ministries of this church? Are we doing these things? Now let me put it in the context of the message of the cross. 
So not only did Jesus die on the cross, but he also calls us to follow him. And when he calls us to follow him, he says to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and follow him. Luke 14, Jesus says this, Whoever does not bear his own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Mark Sayers writes this, We are slaves. The churches that do not fade and disappear in the culture of the West will be churches that preach, teach, and live out the truth that we are called to live as slaves of Christ. A church fragrance of selflessness in a culture of selfishness. We are people who give up our autonomy to the one true king, the king who has taken all of our rebellion, our sin, our injustice upon himself. We lay our authority and autonomy down at the feet of the king with scars. The cross is a linchpin of the world. Remove it and everything drifts apart. When we understand our purpose, we can lay our rights down as individuals and we can take up our responsibility as members of a community. Taking up the cross means that we turn our energies outward instead of focusing on what I need, what I want, I focus on the health health of other people. This is what it means to be a part of a community, that the health of the community is more important than your own health. Now notice, as I'm talking about this, I'm not saying that our responsibility is to serve in a ministry. This is necessary. I hope that all of us are or will. But to serve in a ministry as a volunteer, this is secondary. The question is not whether or not we've volunteered ourselves. The question is whether or not we've followed Jesus to the cross. The question is whether or not we've taken up our cross and denied ourselves for the sake of the gospel. If you are a member of this church, your highest responsibility is to to deny yourself. It's to take up your cross, which is an instrument of death. Your highest responsibility is to die to your own desires on a daily basis. This is why Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow Jesus wherever he might lead you. If you die to yourself, if you follow Jesus, he might lead you to another job or another community or he might lead you into the nursery. But primarily, what is our job? We need to focus on the cross and the implications for our lives. Your purpose, if you're a member of Indelible Grace Church, is to take up your cross and die. I just realized I sound like a huge downer. But there's good news here. So what do we believe is possible at this church? So I want us, I want us to imagine something. Imagine five years, 2024. Imagine five years from now, our church is, at our core, the same. We gather on Sundays for worship. We attend community groups on Wednesdays. We have all the same ministries. And maybe we have our own building one day. I don't know. Imagine that. Imagine that our attendance has doubled. Imagine our finances have tripled. Imagine that people all around the East Bay, they know our name. Is it incredible grace? Ineffable grace? In inedible grapes. I've heard uh, multiple variations of our name. But imagine that people all over the East Bay know the name Indelible Grace Church. Now imagine 
this as well. Imagine that the majority of our members are in the same spiritual state they're in now. They don't treasure God anymore. They don't pray any more than they do now. They don't find themselves in the Word of God more than they do now. They're not saddened by sin in their lives any more than they are now. They're not any more sensitive to the Spirit. They love comfort and safety as much as they do now. Imagine they spend all their money the same way. Imagine that they're they're just as risk-averse and resistant to sacrificial service as they are now. And our church hasn't made anything but a few disciples. Imagine that in 2024, the majority of our members are at the same maturity level as they are in 2019. Is this something that you want? Would you be satisfied with an outwardly thriving church? Would you rather have a nice building with 200 really nice people in there who give regularly but don't love God anymore? Or would you want a few people who love Jesus with everything they have? What do you want more? I hope our answer to this question is no, because it would mean that we've settled for something less than what God has called us to. Look at verse 128 with me in your bulletin. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Paul is saying here, God defeats the strong and the influential and the respectable people through nobodies, through people like you and me. By all standards, this is an illogical thing. It doesn't make sense that these people who just aren't as beautiful and powerful and influential can do something that's stronger than what the CEOs and the rich and the respectable people do. But God says, this is exactly how I work. God does impossible things through a church that puts all its faith in God alone. We boast in nothing except God, so that God will get all the glory. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, which is you and me, to bring to nothing things that are. So let's not think about our resources right now for a minute, but what do you think can really happen at this church? What do you think we can really accomplish in this church? Last week I ended the message with this thought. This is the question, or the the uh, call I put in front of us. For those of us who have low expectations of what can happen in our own lives or in families or in community groups or ministries or at IGC, if we have low expectations of what can happen, we need to repent of thinking that God is small and his spirit is weak. Don't think about what we can or can't do with our resources. Consider what God can do through his spirit. Can the Spirit really open the eyes of my friend who's just not getting it? Can he really mend broken marriages? Can he really make courageous men and women out of cowards? Can he really overcome the unbelief and the addictions and the anger of our friends in this room? Can he really put in us a love for making disciples? I can't do that. Only the Spirit can make these things happen. 
how you answer these questions depends on whether or not you believe the message of the cross is true. If your answer is yes, that God can do these things and that he will, then would you not, would you not give yourself to the work of the church? Wouldn't you support what's happening here through your time and energy and prayers and resources? If you knew that God could do that, if he could really do what is impossible in our eyes, And we need to believe this is true. Otherwise, this church is going to be the same as it's always been. But it's possible. It is. Andy Crouch says that culture defines the horizons of the possible and the impossible in very concrete, tangible ways. What if we had a culture where we just expected God to answer our prayers? What if we had a culture where we just... We, we asked uh, things that didn't make sense of God. God, would you save my friend who hates me right now? What if we had a culture that just expected God to work through our friends and through us? What would our church look like? So that's a question we need to ask. What is really possible at this church? And finally, the, the final question we ask, what must we do to shape the culture of this church? What do I do to shape the culture of this church? So we're talking about the type of culture that we want to have. And if you attend regularly, did you know that you're also shaping the culture of this church? Whether you intend to or not, you're contributing to the culture of this church. For better or for worse, we're all playing a part in defining what is normal and assumed here. So in that sense, we're all culture shapers. We're all cultivators. And most of the time, this cultivation, this shaping of our culture, it's not flashy. It's actually really boring. Most of the time, it's unseen. In his book, Culture Making, Andy Crouch says this, the most demanding forms of cultivation are disciplines, long apprenticeships in the rudiments of a cultural form, small things done over and over that create new capacities in us over time. Underneath almost every act of culture making, we find countless small acts of culture keeping. How do we shape the culture of this church? Because we're going to do it whether or not we intend to. I had a list of about eight different things that we can do. Um, but today we're just going to focus on three. Three things that we have to do in order to create a new culture in this church that honors God. So the first thing we have to do is simply to attend. We have to make it a priority to attend the Sunday services and our community groups if you attend those. My guess is the reason why we often miss these gatherings is there's, there's just something somewhere better to be or something that's more compelling. And I'm not trying to guilt us over this, there's sometimes we just, things are out of our control, we can't attend as much as we want to, but as much as is possible, we need to attend. We need to be a part of this community in a, in a meaningful way. And I want us to be aware that our presence or absence is felt, even if we don't think anyone notices, because we do. People notice when you're gone. Have you ever thought about that? If you were thinking, I'm not sure I want to go to church tomorrow, consider this. Someone's going to miss your presence. We notice these things 
all of us do. And it's encouraging when we know that we're not alone in our mission as a church. If we know that every week our brothers and sisters, they've sacrificed to, to be here on Sundays or to be at our community groups, this is encouraging. And it's discouraging when it seems like our brothers and sisters, they, when they communicate by lack of their attendance, that our gatherings aren't as important as other things that are happening. So we need to attend for the sake of other people. We also need to attend for the sake of ourselves. We, may not, we, might not let, we might not feel like we're benefiting from being a part of our gatherings every week. I know that sometimes I come to church and I go, I walk out and I go, I wish I did something else. I bet you've thought that as well. I think, I'm, a, I'm the pastor of this church. I've thought that. But did you know whether or not you attend, you're becoming something. If you attend, you're hearing the word of God. And even though there's no immediate, immediate effect, it's getting inside you. When you decide, when you choose to come or not come, you're either becoming more invested in the purpose of this church or you're becoming more detached. That means that you're becoming more of a follower of Christ or you're becoming less of a follower of Christ. Every single week, the type of disciple or non-disciple that you are in 10 or 30 years, this is far more important than whether or not you find our weekly gatherings compelling or entertaining. And it's the small decisions to engage or disengage that make us who we are. So we need to attend. And let me add this as well. Along with attending, we should make it a priority to attend things on time. Have you ever thought about this? Maybe going to bed before midnight on Saturday, this is an act of love to your friends in this church. And maybe setting your alarm clock to go off half an hour earlier, this can be an act of worship. It's these little tiny things that we don't think about. These are the things that shape us, and they're the things that shape this church. So we attend. The second thing we need to do to create a culture that's healthy and biblical, that honors God, is to pray. When you pray, praise God for who he is. Pray for your own faith that it would grow and abound. Pray for others in this church. Pray for everyone who serves in any capacity at IGC. Pray without ceasing, Paul says. Pray for the children as well. <laughs> Make it a point to be at the prayer meetings that Mel leads every Sunday morning, almost every Sunday morning. If you want to see God work, you have to pray. You have to pray. And I would love for the day to come when 10 o'clock in the library that we have more people in the room praying than we do chairs. We haven't had that ever but maybe one day we will. Maybe you can make it happen. If we, want, if we want to see God work, we have to pray. And the final thing we have to do to cultivate is to listen to the Spirit. As we said last week, the Spirit reveals to us what we need to know. If the Spirit is working in you, and if you are a part of this church, that means that you are responsible for making this church what it is. If you're counting only on the leaders to tell you how to serve or what to do, it's going to be so frustrating and exhausting for everyone involved. 
But if we make space in our own lives and we, if we create a, a, a quiet in our own lives in which we can pay attention to the Spirit and also obey the Spirit, then we can see the culture of this church change. I had this thought yesterday. Perhaps we don't have a volunteer problem at this church. Perhaps we have a spirit deafness problem in this church. Did you know that we have needs in all the ministries of this church, especially the nursery and children's ministry? They're always scrambling to find people. But the problem is not that we don't have enough volunteers. It's that we don't listen to what the Spirit is telling us. Listening to the Spirit doesn't just have to be in the context of how you might serve in the church. Maybe listening to the Spirit is just letting Him guide you. And by the way, this is always very slow and difficult and frustrating. Obeying Jesus is always going to be, will require sacrifice in our parts. But we have to listen to the Spirit to let us guide us so that we'll become more like Jesus. Now, imagine if we had a hundred people in this church who were becoming more like Jesus every day. Imagine if we had a hundred people every day. They're just little by little by little. They're they're becoming more like Jesus. I think that if this happened, this church would be completely different. Over the course of many years, the habits that we develop as individuals will shape IGC way more than the messages that we give from this pulpit. In the long term, who you become is what IGC will become. Who I become, the decisions that I make this afternoon, that's where IGC is headed. And what you do this afternoon, what you do tomorrow, what you do Saturday night next week, this is where IGC is headed. And who's responsible for the health of this church? You are. You are. If you want to love your church well, listen to the Spirit of God. And I want to end with an encouragement. This isn't in your bulletin, but Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I have talked to a lot of you over the past few months, and I have been so encouraged by how God is working in your life. And I see on some levels just how committed many of you are. I I know that many here sacrifice to give to the church and to serve in ministries. I see maybe, generous estimate, I see maybe 10% of what's happening in this church. But God sees it all. And he knows how discouraging it is and frustrating it is when you're tired and when it seems like no one is is stepping up to help you out or when it seems like no one's noticing what you're doing. But the encouragement is that God knows. And he says that all the efforts and sacrifices are worth it because God is building the church through you. Not just the leadership, but he's building the church through you. Our church, as you may know, is far from a perfect church. I hear criticisms about our church all the time. People have left our church in the past few months, and it hurts the reasons they give. 
I hear these criticisms and complaints about IGC all the time. And honestly, most of the time, I agree with them. There are so many ways in which we fall short, so many ways in which we're not being wise with our resources or with our energies. There are so many ways in which we need to grow. But let me say this, that God is still working. We are becoming something. We're always becoming something. And I hope that we'll all stick around for months and years, perhaps even decades to help it become what God wants this church to be, to create a culture that honors him. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much that I am not alone in this place, but that you have given this church 120-something members and 40-something communicant children your word and your Holy Spirit to carry out your mission on this earth, God. I pray that our church would be a faithful church, not a big church, not a flashy church, but a faithful church, God. That's what we want, and I pray that all that we do would honor you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.